0: last of five discourses that um, Matthew has recorded for us in the book of Matthew and each of these discourses end with a saying that says when Jesus finished these words or when Jesus finished these instructions or when Jesus finished these parables some kind of closure to that and the first one was in the sermon on the mount Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and the second one came in Matthew chapter 10 where He instructed His disciples before they would go out and preach the nearness of the kingdom. The third was Matthew 13 in the, the preaching of the kingdom parables. And the fourth was found in Matthew 18 where Jesus spoke of belief in Him and forgiveness. And today we come to verse chapters 24 and 25 It's often called the Olivet Discourse because you'll notice there in verse 3 that Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. And I anticipate now that we've been back in Matthew, we're going to be back here in Matthew for a season of time. So I've charted this out. I hope to be finished finished with Matthew 24 and 25 by the end of May. Kind of gives you about a two-month time frame that we are going to be looking at these things. And these are difficult things. They're things dealing with end times and prophecy. I've had several people come up to me in the most recent weeks and said, Steve, I know Matthew 24 is coming up, and we are really praying for you, that you might uh, really discern what the Scripture is saying and might teach us and might teach us well. And I think that it's very much appropriate for us to begin our time here in the Olivet Discourse with a a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, these are, are difficult words. Difficult to understand, difficult to interpret. Over the years there have been much conflict, much difference of opinion regarding these things. And I pray that you would give us insight to know how they are to be understood. Give us understanding to know how it is that we should believe, what it is that we are to expect, how it is that we are to behave. I pray, O Lord, for your anointing and your blessing of this time, that we might be believers of the Word, not believers of fantasy or not believers of someone's imagination, but believers of the things that Christ Jesus has told us Himself. This is, in many ways, the definitive word from the mouth of Jesus of what to expect in times to come. And I pray that you would guide us in these things. Help me, God, to speak forth the truth, protect me, From error, protect us from error, but may we be guided by your Spirit in all things as we seek to to know and apply uh, these words of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, let's begin by looking at our first two verses here, Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. We read this, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Here we find Jesus in verse 1, walking away from the temple. Say the temple was over here. Jesus is like walking away from them. In some sense, I believe this is a, a symbolic fulfillment of what took place, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38. After Jesus, in chapter 23, condemned these scribes and the Pharisees, He said, Behold, your house is left desolate. And the glory of the Lord was leaving the house for the final time. I think that's what was happening there. He says, Jesus said, Your house will be deserted. You will be left desolate. You have rejected your Messiah. I leave you alone. I now depart. Now why the disciples pointed out to Jesus the wonderful buildings to him, I have no idea. Maybe it relates back here to chapter 23, verse 38, when Jesus said, Your house is being left desolate. They said, This is hardly desolate. Jesus, look at these wonderful buildings. Look at these wonderful stones. This is a a great building. And the temple indeed was a beautiful building. The Temple Mount and the temple itself was constructed, much of it was, during the reign of Herod. It was the time of Jesus, before the time of Jesus. It was with His blessing and the expense of the Roman government that this whole facility was, was made and created. It took a tremendous amount of work. The Talmud calls it Herod's greatest building achievement. It was this big mountain. It was on a, it was on kind of a mountain, and it was built up to be this whole mount. It was a gigantic area. You might, you might think about an area of like a track, kind of gives you an idea about how big this area was. Maybe a track or two, you know, a quarter mile around. It, it was, it's a big mammoth place. There had to be lots of landfill, and there had to be lots of stones around the walls to build this thing. These stones were very large in size. Most of them about. About three feet tall. Uh, I'm guessing maybe three or four feet wide. And most of them were, I don't know, maybe 12 feet long or so. Each of them weighing several tons. There's one stone that archaeologists have unearthed. Kind of it's down near the foundation of this temple mount. It's 40 feet long. Weighing several hundred tons. Archaeologists to this day are baffled how it is that they could get all these stones placed upon one another, move there. All these stones were chiseled. Chiseled so precisely that there's no mortar involved in these walls. In other words, you take this big long stone and you set it down. And they set them down back about a couple centimeters just to bear the weight and the strength of this. They set them down and they chiseled them maybe from a a quarry near Damascus. They they, they chiseled, chiseled them down near the Damascus gate. Chiseled them down just straight so they land right on top of each other. They stood for 2,000 years, many of the wall, building this temple mount. And when you go there, if you go to Jerusalem, and look at this, you will be amazed at at these stones that are there. that are still standing to this day because of the strength of which they are, how big they are. That was the temple mount. Now on the temple mount itself was the temple which stood... On this big platform. If you walked in Jerusalem, you could probably see it. It was, it, was, it was up high, raised up enough. And you could see this building. And this was glorious as well. It was a beautiful white stone building with massive pillars and massive doors. Much of it overlaid with silver and gold. Very ornate and beautiful. If you go to the, te- to the city of Jerusalem today, you can't see the temple. In fact, it was completely destroyed when the Romans entered Jerusalem in AD 70. In academic circles today, there is arguments and debates about where exactly the temple was located on the Temple Mount. I've read some of these arguments, and I, I've read there are five, at least five different views of where the temple was on the Temple Mount. Some say it was right there at the Dome of the Rock. That's probably the majority view, is that the temple was right there where the, the Muslims now have built this huge expensive building called the Dome of the Rock. Some say it's in the al Aska Mosque, right, which is down south a little bit. Some say that it's uh, up north a little bit. Some say even, I read this past week that there was even another platform that they said off down south. But the point is this, is that it's all theory and it's all conjecture and there is not one shred of archaeological evidence at all because all of the stones and all the building that was part of the temple building have been utterly destroyed. That's exactly what Jesus said here in verse 2. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which shall not be torn down. That's exactly what happened. There is not a single shred of evidence of that temple still around. It's exactly what Jesus told them would happen. Now I think when Jesus told his disciples these things in verse 2, I think that several things would have come into their mind. I think first they probably would have had a difficulty believing it. I mean, the temple was a huge building. It was a solid building and seemingly would stand forever. And in fact, the wall surrounding the Temple Mount gives enough evidence of what the magnificence of this structure must have been like. So when Jesus said, yeah, all these stones will be turned down, I think initially He said, he, I, I don't think so. That thing's going to stand forever. Maybe in our mind you might think about you know, the standing of the Sears Tower. Boy, that thing's going to stand forever, huh? Until the events of 9-11. We see now how the Sears Tower could be utterly destroyed. But if I would have told you five years ago, the Sears Tower, gone someday, you'd be like, well, I don't think so. That's a pretty firm, solid structure. Maybe we'll take it down. But now we can see that. Now we can understand. I think the the disciples at first had difficulty in believing it. I think second, they might have, as they were processing this through in their mind, maybe they thought of some scripture when Jesus said these things. Listen to Micah, chapter 3, verse 12. Speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem someday. It says this, Therefore, on account of you, Zion, will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple will become as high places of a forest. Maybe they started thinking about the Old Testament prophecy from Micah. As Jeremiah quoted as well, there's going to be a day when Jerusalem become a heap of ruins and the, the mountain of the temple becoming a, a forest. So maybe those things started running around in their minds. But thirdly, I think, the third thing would have been they've been curious. Like Jesus just made this huge statement. This thing's going to tear down. And they're like, When's that going to happen, Jesus? And so that's exactly what they did. They asked Jesus this question here in verse 3. But notice it took them some time in verse 3 before they asked this question. Jesus came out of the temple in verse 1. He comments in verse 2 about the building. And it's not until they're on the Mount of Olives where Jesus' disciples asked this question. They would have taken the hike out of the temple, down the Kidron Valley up the Kidron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives where they could have overseen all of Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day journey away. It means about a kilometer. It would have taken 20, 30 minutes. Maybe the disciples are walking along or mulling this, this statement of Jesus in their minds and just the curiosity got the cat. And they ask Jesus, when would these things be? And it's from these questions that Jesus then launches to speak for two chapters of Matthew All about the future events of things that will happen. Chapters 24 and 25 are called prophecy. They are called eschatology. That's a new word to you. The Greek word eschatos means last or end. And so eschatology means a study of end times. And we will be studying the next several months about prophecy. We'll be studying about end times. But before we proceed... Really to what Jesus says in verse 4. I think we need to lay this week a few foundational perspectives before we just jump in. I think just to jump in might be a mistake. We might come to some difficulties in understanding things. So I think first today is more going to be like, a, like an overview of prophecy in general. My sermon title this morning is Prophecy Is dot dot dot. I'm going to give you three characteristics of prophecy this morning. Next week we'll jump in right with their question and then look at what Jesus says in verses 4 and following. But this week we overview what prophecy is, just to set the foundation. First of all, prophecy is difficult. Prophecy is difficult. In the past five weeks I've done much reading and much study on this passage. Read several books about this passage, really trying to study it. And I found it difficult to understand. Now it's not that it's difficult in the words that Jesus uses... In fact, to be honest, the grammar is very simple. It's not like you need a Greek text or to understand the Greek language in order to figure out everything. There's really no question as to what Jesus is saying. And it's not difficult even to get a a general understanding of what Jesus is communicating. His practical exhortations, we'll see, are very clear. There's no problem in understanding what Jesus says. As a result of this, this is how you ought to live. But it's difficult in the particulars it's difficult to know exactly what Jesus was referring to. And though Jesus was answering the question, when, it's difficult to know when. And the commentaries that I read on this passage, I'm telling you, they're all over the map. Some say that everything concerning which Jesus spoke, 24, 25, was all fulfilled in AD 70. Some say it was all fulfilled. Like done. And there are other commentaries I read that made statements that said it's all future. None of it's fulfilled. I don't know how much further of a spectrum you can get. And these over here who say that everything has been fulfilled, these are called preterists. Okay, preterite means a past tense. It's done. It's happened. And these over here, I've never heard this term before, but I think Preterists, past. These are futurists who believe that everything is still yet in the future. And they span the spectrum. And every commentator lands somewhere in between. Some hedge more towards the futuristic understanding, and some hedge more towards the preterist understanding. I'm just telling you, commentaries are all over the board. Kind of gives you an insight into how difficult it is. And it's difficult in answering when. What is not so difficult? It's when that's the difficulty. Now at this point, you need to know that these types of difficulties aren't unique just to Jesus' words here in the Olivet Discourse. The the very dilemma we're facing here of whether it's fulfilled or it's not fulfilled is characteristic of much of the prophecy that's in the Bible. For example this, I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 begins... By giving the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then the last half of the chapter speaks about the birth of Jesus Christ. And every Christmas time we go over the details of what took place so long ago in Jerusalem. We know the story well. Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married but hadn't yet consummated this marriage. And the Holy Spirit descended upon Mary and miraculously conceived a boy in her womb. And then we come to those famous words in verses 22 and 23. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now you look at this scripture, and you read it, and you might get the sense that Isaiah was describing the future coming of Messiah. Almost as if Isaiah was saying, okay, here's how you can identify the Messiah. The the Messiah is one who's going to be born of a virgin. Kind of like your big checklist of all the things that, that Messiah does. Well, born of a virgin, just right there. Isaiah made that really clear. However, if you should go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you'll find that there's no mention of a coming Messiah in that passage. There's no mention of the way to identify the Messiah. There's no mention of a future expectation like this passage wasn't fulfilled. So here's the story. I'll just remind you of this. You can go back and read it today. The kings of Aram and Israel were waging war against Judah. Aram and Israel were north. All right? Aram was more in Damascus area, and Israel was more Samaria and north. And they're combining forces together, coming down south to attack Judah. And so close was the threat that when the report came to the people of Judah, the Arameans of camped in Ephraim. Isaiah writes that the hearts of Judah, the hearts of the people, shook as trees of the forest shake with the wind. You've seen that, kids, right? The, the wind comes along and the trees go whoosh, whoosh, And people were doing that as well. They were just terrified of this impending invasion coming upon them. They were under attack, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and told them to go to Ahaz, king of Judah, the king of the south, and he told Ahaz, he says, take care, be calm, have no fear, and don't be fainthearted over the impending attack of these nations. Don't worry about it, he says. Though they are saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it, Threatening the king, going to overthrow the king, going to set up their choice as king there. The Lord God said, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Now that claim was difficult to believe. They were right there, Israel, Aram, powerful nations, on the doorsteps of the territory of Judah, about to attack, fully capable of overthrowing Judah. And yet God says, be calm, don't worry. They won't succeed. And to prove his claim to be true, the Lord said to Ahaz in Isaiah 7.10, He said, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. He says, you ask of a sign and you make make it just so miraculous that it would be so incredible, it would be a clear display that the Lord is the one who had done it. I mean, if the Lord can do exactly what you say, as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, then certainly he can stop these two countries in defeating your army in battle, can't he? You catch what, what's happening here with Ahaz? And Ahaz then piously says in Isaiah 7, 12, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. I don't know why he said that, he didn't. And so the Lord said, okay, you're not going to do it. Let me give you a sign that is just so incredible that you will see that I'm the one who did it. He said, Isaiah 7:14. now I'm going to read. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, and he will eat curds and honey. At the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. In other words, it's going to be a virgin, going to be pregnant with a child, going to bear a child. This child's going to grow up eating curds and honey. As soon as this child knows between good and evil, the threat against you... Gone away. That was God's sign to Ahaz. In chapter 8, we see a birth of a boy. It was said of this boy, Before the boy knows how to cry out, My father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And it's exactly what took place in 732 B.C. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, destroyed Damascus, which is where Aram was and destroyed Samaria which, Samaria, which is where Israel was. In a few years, the threat of these two kings against Judah was gone. Indeed, the word of the Lord proved to be true, and several times in chapter 8, Isaiah referred to Emmanuel, how God was with us. Okay, and now here comes the question. With regard to Isaiah 7.14, was Ahaz a preterist? Or was Ahab a futurist? Right? In, in other words, did Ahaz think that this prophecy was fulfilled? Or did Ahaz think, I think this prophecy is not fulfilled. I think it's yet to be fulfilled. What do you think? Was Isaiah 7.14 fulfilled in Ahaz' day? Or was it future yet to come? I say yes. I think it was fulfilled both times. I think it was fulfilled in both instances. I believe Isaiah 7.14 14 was fulfilled in the time of Ahaz. The kingdoms were gone. The threat was gone. And I believe it was fulfilled also in Matthew, in, a, in Matthew chapter 1. For it says there in Matthew chapter 1, This is what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, that it might be fulfilled, saying this. The Lord made a promise, a virgin to bear a son, calling his name Emmanuel. The Lord promised that two kings to get away before the boy was Old enough, the two kings are gone, certainly was a fulfillment there. It even identifies a boy in Isaiah 8. It's also fulfilled there. What's happening? How do you describe this? Does Scripture contradict itself? How can it be that Isaiah 7.14 is fulfilled in the time of Ahaz and fulfilled in the time of Christ? Let me just say, this is how prophecy works. This is prophecy, and this is why we need to understand it. I've often heard it speak about a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment or an initial fulfillment, and a greater fulfillment. And that's how prophecy works. And we need to understand that as we get into Matthew chapter 24 and 25, of how there can be events to fulfill, and yet there can be a greater sense where the events to be fulfilled in the future. I can name many passages in the Bible where this happens. Let me just name a few for you. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast their lots. What does that sound like? Does that sound like David? David? It doesn't. It sounds like Jesus. And yet David's saying that his God forsook him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm surrounded by all of these enemies. It was David who he was talking about. But in a greater sense, in a more fulfillment sense, it was fulfilled in Christ. Fulfilled in the cross. In fact, in John 19, verse 36, we get an insight that the reason they didn't break the legs of Jesus... And so that he could count all his bones so that the scripture might be fulfilled. And yet, David is speaking about his own experience. That's how prophecy works. It's a near fulfillment in David. It's a far fulfillment also in Christ. It's not a contradiction. It's the way that God has chosen to write his word. I'll give you another instance. 2 Samuel chapter 7. In this passage, the Lord prophesies of the son of David who will build the temple... And the Lord said that his throne will be established forever. Now who's that talking about? Solomon? Or is he talking about Christ? Yes. Solomon is the one who built the temple. But Solomon's throne didn't endure forever. Jesus is the only throne that endured forever. It must be talking about Solomon. But it must be talking also about Jesus. Here's a sense where you have a a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. That's how prophecy works. Another one, Hosea 11.1. Talking about Israel. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. What's that talking about? It's talking about Moses in the time of Exodus. Out of Egypt I've called my son to bring him. He was a slave in Egypt, but I've brought him out. But yet Matthew chapter 2 verse 15, you can just turn over there, says, verse 14, He arose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. This is Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And he was there until the death of Herod. That what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. So Hosea 11.1 1, is that fulfilled in Israel. Coming out in redemption? Was that fulfilled in Christ coming out of Egypt? I say yes. It's both of those. You can look even at the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. You've heard of this one before, right? He was despised, forsaken of men. Our grease he himself bore. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Crust for our iniquities. A chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we're healed. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You read those things, and what do you think about? You think of Jesus, and rightly so. And yet, if you chase through Isaiah, and you read, the servant is often identified as being Israel. Let me just consider one of, I've got four or five verses here written down. Consider one of them. Isaiah 49, verse 3. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. The servant is Israel. The servant is Israel. Isaiah says that several times. So when you get up here to Isaiah 53 or refers back in chapter 52, I think it's verse 13, about how this is talking about my servant, the Jews today say, that's not talking about Jesus, that's talking about Israel. And see, they've got it right in one sense. That there was a suffering that Israel had, and yet, really in the greater fulfillment of that, it absolutely has to be Jesus, because Israel can't do all those things. But that's how prophecy works, and we need to understand that. They're often near references, they're often far references. And distinguishing between the two is difficult, which is my point. Let me show you what prophecy is like. This is prophecy. I have here a a knotted piece of yarn. Now some is white, which has been fulfilled, and some is blue, which... Hasn't been fulfilled. And the problem is prophecy gets all like wound together. And if you start trying to un- untie this thing, what happens? You're going to tie all in knots. And sometimes your biblical understanding, if you try to separate the the fulfilled from the unfulfilled, you're going to be in some trouble. In fact, there are some strings in here. If I just take, you know, like this one here. See, it's blue, right? It, no, wait a minute. No, no, it's it's white. No, it's blue. No, it's white. No, it's bl- and that's how prophecy works. There's some times where sometimes it's looking further and sometimes it's looking closer and sometimes and it's it, this is prophecy, all right. So if we go to Matthew 24. We need to see that. In fact, you can turn back to Matthew chapter 24. We see the disciples even when they're asking this question. they're they're looking at things with a particular perspective, right? In verse 3, when they said, Tell us, when will these things be? In other words, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming? Well, Jesus is already there. In what sense are you talking about His coming? I think they're talking about, when when is going to be your full manifestation of your presence? And when is going to be the end of the age? Now, there's debate about that, whether it's the end of the Jewish age, whether it's the end of the world. But in the Jewish, in the minds of the disciples, they're thinking destruction of the temple, Christ coming in all its glory, end of the world. All these things are sort of mixed together, and D.A. Carson said it well. He said the disciples think of Jerusalem's destruction and the eschatological end as a single complex web of events. When the Messiah thought of the coming of, when the disciples thought of the coming of Messiah, they clearly thought that his coming would. Re- would result in the redemption of the bondage of Rome and perhaps the culmination of all things. When they saw prophecy, that's what they saw. Maybe you remember when the two disciples were on the road to Emmaus. They they were describing to the stranger who came alongside them, the things that took place in Jerusalem, and they said that we were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel from Roman oppression, probably is the, the case there. See, they saw Messiah coming back, political, kingly, ruler. Because they saw it prophesied in Scripture that would be the case. That's what they saw. In fact, even after Jesus was raised from the dead, they said, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is it now that you're going to really destroy the, the temple, come set up your kingdom and establish everything? But for these disciples to fully understand what Jesus did and how exactly Jesus fulfilled the Scripture, it took time and reflection and study and eventually as time passed and they came to see clearly what took place, they said, oh, there are two comings of Jesus. One was close by, another one's off a bit. But the never, disciples never understood this until after the fact. After the fact, they could stood back here and say, oh, I got it. I understand. In fact, I've heard this described as... Um, um, When you're climbing up some mountains and you just look at a mountain range, it kind of looks like all the mountains are here. And yet you start hiking. You go up and over one mountain. You find yourself in the valley. You find there's mountains back there and there are mountains ahead. What to the Old Testament prophet looked like this range of mountains, when you're in the midst of it, you can say, oh, there was one mountain back there and there's another mountain ready to come. And that's how prophecy works as well. It's often only after the fact that you look back and say, why didn't I see that? And you know, there's a reason why you don't see it. It's because God hides it sometimes. In fact, it's said in Ephesians chapter 3, I think it's verse 5, that there is a a mystery which God kept hidden in ages before. But now He's revealed to the sons of men. What is it? It's the mystery of Christ coming to save first, rather than coming to judge later. We see this often. Even... In uh, Luke chapter 4, there's a, a passage there that talks about when Jesus comes to hometown into the synagogue to preach. His first sermon came from Isaiah 61. He asked for the scroll from the servant. He opened it up to Isaiah 61 and he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. At that point he closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and preached from these verses. Now it's significant that Jesus didn't finish the second verse. The second verse goes on to speak about the judgment. Speaks about the day of vengeance. Here you have in the same verse, you have one coming of Christ, which goes into another coming of Christ, and Jesus preached on only half of it, because He understood how intertwined it was. The Jews didn't. The Jews simply read the whole verse. He's going to come, proclaim liberty to captives. It's going to be the day of vengeance. It's going to be destruction. But it only is after the fact that we look back, and we can understand how it is that it worked itself out. But the disciples didn't understand that Messiah would come as a sacrifice for our sins first to redeem us, and then the second time come, at least 2,000 years later, to come as judge to condemn those who refuse to believe the gospel and the hardness of their hearts. When he would come as a king to receive those who have believed. But you know what, Isaiah, when he wrote in Isaiah 61... I don't think he knew that there were two comings. I, I don't think he knew that. And, and in fact, though we have no record of it, and, perhaps, and though we know that this didn't take place because God hid things, there could very well have been an eschatological debate in the, in the Jewish synagogues before Jesus came. Some may have believed in the prejudgmental coming of the Messiah, right? that Messiah would come first before he judged. And others believed in the imminent judgment view. And they would have argued back and forth. And each of them would have had their scriptures. And they would have gone back and forth arguing which was the case. And I can imagine prophecy conferences in which each of these groups are using scriptures. And I can imagine the endless debates that would have arisen. And yet because God in other generations did not make this known to some men, to the sons of men. it's now been revealed to the Holy Apostles. They didn't see. They didn't understand. But they could very well have had debates like that. I just say that's how prophecy works. It's not cut and dry. It's not able, I don't think, to be fully understood. I think that this is equally true of the second coming of Christ. It's difficult to understand all the details we think of his coming. But I'm sure of this I stand positive that after the fact it will all be very clear how all the scriptures all work together. We'll understand which verses were fulfilled partially, and which ones were still future, and which ones were fulfilled completely. And the Lord makes that all known to us. But today, we stand in that difficult age as we try to predict and understand the future. And there's some things we see there, but it's, it's cloudy. It's not quite clear because prophecy is difficult. Second, prophecy is dangerous. Prophecy is dangerous. You know, there's something about knowing what the future holds that captures the attention of us all, whether we're Christians or not Christians. I mean, we, who wouldn't want to know the future? I remember as a child being fascinated by fortune cookies, you know, opening those up and in some sense believing the fortunes would come true in my life. I think it's this fascination of trying to know the future that, that keeps horoscopes in business. Because people always want to try to know the future. I remember um, meeting with and talking with a non-Christian friend of mine. Who was very interested in the book of Revelation. Very interested. On several occasions he told me that he'd done some in-depth study of the Bible. And it was all in the book of Revelation. And uh, the only reason why he was studying Revelation is because... He thinks that it will help get him an advantage in this life. If he's smart enough to figure everything out, what's going to take place? Right? It's going to give him an advantage. I shared the gospel of this man with this man on several occasions. He rejected it every time. This man's blind to the gospel, but interested in eschatology. I say that's dangerous. I know of many groups that are dedicated to the study of prophecy. Radio ministries studied to prophecy. Television ministries stud- devoted to prophecy. Sunday school classes devoted to the study of prophecy. And all their focus and all their efforts focused upon eschatology and prophecy. Producing books, writing articles, having semin- seminars. And I say, beloved, that is dangerous. Here's why. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, I don't think there's any accident why Jesus places this at the top of the list. See to it that no one misleads you. I will tell you that nobody will lead you, mislead you more than those who focus their entire attention upon eschatology. No one will mislead you more than those who are experts in prophecy. These people oftentimes read their Bible in one hand, and they read their newspaper in another. And they read their newspaper to try to understand their Bible, and then oftentimes they make predictions. (coughs) And I just say, you just wait a few years, and they'll probably come wrong. For instance, I listened this week to a tape of a man I respect greatly who was preaching in the 1980s. Okay, think, think about back to the 1980s, okay, early 1980s. <coughs> he was talking about eschatology and all this stuff and talked about the king of the north. Now, of course, we know who the king of the north is, right? That was Russia. And then he was talking also about, you know, the king's going to unite with Persia, which is Iran and Afghanistan. And the, the preacher was saying, I don't know how Russia is going to unite with Afghanistan and Iran. Do you remember what happened in 1979? Kids are excusing this because many of you weren't born. 1979, what happened, Steve? (coughs) Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And so this Bible teacher said, "Ah, we got an idea right here. It's 1980. And he said this, I quote, before the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, it was difficult to see how that country fit into the picture. But now we know Afghanistan is controlled by the Soviet Union. But today, does that sound ridiculous? You would all respect this man. Today does it sound ridiculous? Yes, it does, because Russia fell. Russia doesn't control Afghanistan anymore. I don't think he'd say such a thing today, because it doesn't mix with things that are there. It used to be the prophecy experts. We're talking about Mikhail Gorbachev. You remember on his forehead what he had? And that little birthmark, right? And and they took that and said that's the sign of the beast. And they talked all about Mikhail Gorbachev. And yet, once communism fell in 1991, not been a lot of talk about Mikhail Gorbachev anymore. And those same people, I'm telling you, those same people talk about Mikhail Gorbachev. In recent days, it's been Saddam Hussein that they've been talking about. I mean, after all, he controlled ancient Babylon. After all, he's talked about rebuilding Babylon. I mean, doesn't Revelation speak about how Babylon's restored to greatness only to fall? And yet, are people talking about Saddam Hussein anymore being the Antichrist? I'm telling you, they're not. With the American invasion in 2003, the top talk of Saddam Hussein, Antichrist, falling to a trickle. You can pick up these books that used to sell for like $15. You can pick them up for like 20 cents. Because they're so outdated and so wrong. And these same people are now talking about North Korea. Maybe the Taliban. Maybe the terrorists. And I will say... You just wait a few years. North Korea will go away. And these same people will continue to talk about other things. I will say that nobody will lead you more astray than those who have devoted their lives to the study of eschatology. They are still around. More books are written. More books sold. More people deceived as history demonstrates their predictions to be false. <coughs> <coughs> and what disturbs me most is that many, many people continue to follow these prophecy experts. Even after Jesus said, don't be misled. I mean, it's okay to be misled once. It's okay to be misled twice. But to continue to be misled in these things, clearly wrong. I don't understand it. I think it's the dangerous nature of prophecy. And maybe the biggest test case was the Y2K crisis. I think of all these prophecy experts. They have an audience. They have a following. They have an easy stage to propagate their views. And I don't know of a single prophecy expert that didn't predict worldwide catastrophe on January 1st, 2000. I don't know of a single one. And yet, how true is that prediction? (coughs) We all know little happened on that day. You know, there were some Y2K things that went wrong. They're very minor, Quick, quickly fixed. But they're predicting worldwide catastrophe. I got a big file on all their predictions they predicted. They went on record to say that January 1st, 2000, time of global di- disaster, unprecedented. And you know what? They were all wrong. And yet, what's happened today to these people? They're talking about North Korea today. Now, hello, people. People are being deceived by those who are prophecy experts. And I just say that that is the the danger of prophecy. These people continue along. They've got a following. And they're going to have new theories. And they go on as if nothing is wrong. Many books are written about the end of the world, the coming of Christ. But when the predictions fail, the authors wiggle their way out of it and continue on with their ministries as if nothing ever happened, it is dangerous, let me just also say something here, about fictional books on eschatology, they're very fascinating reading, they're very captivating, in fact I know even of non-Christians, I was out in uh, California, and my my in-laws had some of these fictional eschatology books, and there was a guy who came over, and um, he was kind of a, a rough guy, you know, uh, ...wasn't a Christian at all... ...but was captivated by these books. And he loved reading these books. And he read all of them. Whatever, all 14 of them. And he just loved them. Non-Christian, because they're so captivating... ...and they're captivating to the Christian community as well. But I say, they can be very misleading... ...without a biblical understanding... ...of what the Scripture says, how far the Scripture goes... ...where the Scripture stops. It's impossible to discern. The assumptions of the author from the truth of the Bible... Oftentimes great liberties are taken in such books, and many, here's the danger, shape their theology from their fictional eschatology that they read, and not from the Bible. I mean, face it, it's a lot easier to read this nice story, a nice compelling story, and yet it's dangerous. Fictional eschatology is big business today, and fictional eschatology is very dangerous. As you think through stories of, what oh, that's, gonna, that's what it's going to be like, that's what it's going to be like, without being grounded to this, to say, oh, well, there's where a, a writer took a great liberty, and there's where a writer took a great liberty, and kind of taking that in. That's how important it is to understand, be grounded in the Bible, what it says about eschatology, that you might understand where their liberties are taken. But too often, people aren't grounded, and uh, they just believe everything that's said. I think that's done a lot to shape people's eschatology. Well, let's say also prophecy is dangerous because those who are most engrossed in prophetical things often miss the clear commands which are always intertwined in prophetical passages. Never is there a prophetical passage without practical implications. Never. And yet, prophecy seminars, prophecy conferences will all go on and they'll talk all about these time frames and these timelines and what's going to happen, all this stuff, and never get to how we ought to live. Consider Matthew 24 and 25. It is saturated with with implications about how you ought to live. I mean, look, verse 42. Let's just start looking at some of these things. Jesus says in verse 42, be on the alert. You don't know when the coming of the day of the Lord is. Verse 44, be ready. Verse 46, talks about how you ought to be doing the work of the master. Blesses that slave. Whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Verse 13 of chapter 25. Be on the alert. You don't know the day or the hour. Verse 21. Be the good and faithful slave who turns his master's money into a prophet. Verse 35. Give drink to the thirsty. Give shelter to the stranger. Verse 36. Give clothing to the naked. Visit the sick. All of these are practical exhortations to the eschatology that Jesus gives. And people will get so fascinated by the eschatology, they'll just kind of like, oh, well, that doesn't fit on my timeline. How does be ready fit on my timeline? That's like boring. Let's get to something that I can slot into my timeline someplace. They just kind of skip over those things, and they miss them. Rather than being about the master's business, they can often be about studying more and more and more prophecy. Well, prophecy is difficult. Prophecy is dangerous. Here's my third point. Prophecy is also divisive. It's divisive. Those D's are for you, Elroy. Prophecy is divisive. <coughs> On this last point, I have only just a little to say. We'll wrap it up here very soon. I want to quote J.C. Uh, Ryle. He puts it in a great perspective. Listen to what he says. J.C. Ryle says, All portions of Scripture... And he's referring particularly to these portions of Scripture, prophecy. All portions of Scripture like this ought to be approached with deep humility and earnest prayer for the teaching of the Spirit. That's how we always ought to come to the Bible, right? To this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit. We ought to study the Bible on our knees. We ought to come humbly, seeking for it to teach us, not for us to get something out of this. Then he says this, On no point have good people so entirely disagreed as on the interpretation of prophecy. (laughs) Entirely disagreed. I I think that's pretty true. And on no point have the prejudices of one group, the the dogmatism of a second, and the extravagance of a third done so much to rob the church of truths, ...which God intended to be a blessing. Prejudices, dogmatism, extravagance... ...just fight against one another... ...based upon their eschatological systems. I say in the history of the Christian church... ...there have been many views of eschatology... ...and there has never been agreement in the church... ...on which one view is correct. The church has fully agreed down through the ages... ...on many, many different areas. The inerrancy of scripture... ...the deity of Christ... The deity of the Holy Spirit, the physical resurrection from the dead, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there has never been agreement on eschatology. I think that this has to do precisely with my first point, is that eschatology is difficult. I believe that the Lord has intentionally made it cloudy for us. That might shock you. I think the Lord has intentionally made much prophetical study intentionally cloudy. We can see something there, but we can't quite see it all. And I say that based on the fact that that's what the Lord did before the coming of Christ. Oh yeah, they knew a Messiah was coming. And oh yeah, they had this expectation, but what exactly was going to be like they didn't know. And then it came, and like, oh, now I know. In fact, God told us everything. And I think also with the coming of Christ, we see that Christ is coming. We know that He's coming, but... How exactly and when exactly it's going to fit. I think God has made it cloudy for us. In fact, that's what Peter said in terms of the coming of Messiah. He said that the prophets themselves have prophesied, like Isaiah prophesied. and Isaiah himself made careful search and inquiry seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ, the glories to follow really trying to study. Isaiah didn't even know and understand. And I think that we as well stand in the same situation regarding the return of Christ. That Jesus is returning to gather his elect and to judge his enemies is a non-negotiable. And the entire Christian church throughout all history has believed that. He's returning to gather his elect. He's returning to judge. But when that takes place, the exact sequence of events has never found full agreement in the church of Christ. And yet, sadly, there are many who take their views on eschatology and press it as a standard of orthodoxy. Huh, you mean, you don't believe in the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial return of Christ? Your theology is like way gone. You're a heretic if you don't believe that. I'm telling you, churches set that up as a view of orthodoxy. I don't think that's right because to do that would exclude many of the church fathers church founders I mean you just name them Jonathan Edwards can't include him George Whitfield, can't include him you just go down John Owen can't include him John Calvin can't include him they all didn't believe those things I'm thinking right now of two men who have exhibited a great ability to disagree on eschatology and yet be engaged together right with one another in ministry. I'm thinking about John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. I think we ought to think of those two men. If ever they would come to Rock Valley Bible Church, I'm telling you, I'm in the pew and they're up here in a heartbeat. Absolutely. I respect both of these men greatly. And yet their views of these things are on the divergent views of the spectrum. R.C. Sproul is a preterist. He believes that everything of Matthew chapter 24 has been fulfilled. Except maybe verses 29 to 31. I couldn't quite tell. And John MacArthur is a futurist. He believes that nothing in Matthew chapter 24 from verse 4 following has been yet fulfilled. I mean, they're on opposite ends. And yet... They've willingly chosen not to make eschatological views a point of division. R.C. Sproul's been a frequent speaker at the annual Shepherds' Conference, takes place at Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur is pastor. He's welcome there. John MacArthur likewise has been a frequent speaker at the annual Ligonier Conference, that R.C. Sproul hosts in Orlando, Florida. And you know what? They willingly unite because their views of the gospel are the same. They're committed to the absolute, utter sovereignty of God in the saving of a soul. They know that it's only the grace of Christ that saves. They know that it's only because He chose us that we are ever in Him. And they unite on those things. Their eschatology forms no ground for them to divide. And I think that example ought to be held forefront in our minds. Because the view of eschatology, certainly if you don't believe Jesus is coming back, that's wrong. But if you have a view that Jesus is coming back, he's coming to judge, going to save, that is orthodox. How exactly that takes place? There's many, many different views. And may we as a church not make one's views on eschatology a reason to be divisive. Augustine said it well. He said in essentials unity, in non-essentials harmony, in all things charity. You can say it another way, on the majors agreement, on the minors tolerance, on all things love. Prophecy is difficult, dangerous, and decisive, and I would like us to pray for the Lord's guidance in these matters, that we would understand the difficult things to the extent that we can, that we would be protected from the danger of eschatology, and that we would not make this study a divisive thing in our church. Let's pray to him. Let's pray.